Welcome to episode 57 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Josh Wong, founder and CEO of Opus One Solutions. Opus One's vision is a decentralized energy economy, and their mission is to transform the way homes, communities, cities, and grids interact in the energy internet. Opus One is a software engineering company that brings real-time energy management to the smart grid. Through its leading-edge offering, GridOS, Opus One delivers a new level of visibility and control to electricity distribution through sophisticated engineering analytics designed to solve and optimize complex power flows. And my apologies for the fidelity issues this week, but my conversation with Josh will more than make up for it. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and today I'm talking to Josh Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Opus One Solutions. Josh, thank you for being on The Climate Champions. Thank you so much, Lee. I'm so happy to be here. So let's get right into it. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment when you felt you had to do something to mitigate climate? Wow, it's a long history dating back to perhaps too long ago. I went through many, I would say, three-year aspirations when I was young. I wanted to be a paleontologist, but everything's dead. I wanted to become an astronomer, but I want to stay here on the Earth. Then I wanted to become a zoologist, but I gotten very good at math and sciences. So in the end, when I went into university, I actually applied for music because I really enjoyed the arts at that time. But me being Asian, my parents basically said, no music for you, you can't make a living. You got to go into engineering school because you're good at math and sciences. And of course, we, we came from a very grassroots family and I uh, got to pay the bills. And so I went into a top engineering school here in Toronto and went into electrical engineering. But to be honest, when I went in there, I was lost. Like I have like surrounded by really great people and learning a lot of good stuff. But I always felt a bit empty. I don't know what I was here and why I was solving the problems and doing the math and calculus that I was doing. There was one vivid moment when there was a guest speaker from a solar developer from Germany coming over and being invited to become a guest speaker to basically first year students. And so for about two hours, he talked about the ramp of solar development in Germany. This was the late 90s. And putting solar panels on buildings with building integrated PVs and putting it on top of trains. And so while the trains go around the nation, they collect solar energy, putting solar on the side of highways so they can keep generating electricity in areas where there was no shade. And I was completely inspired. 
And I think at that moment, that's when I would say dedicated my life and applying my skills to solving things that are good for the environment. And that was really my pivotal moment. Committed on solar at that time, then really gotten very much into wind, but realized that my electrical engineering skills was actually stronger than my mechanical engineering skills. Afterwards, did a solar car at school and even went into field cells with a company called Hydrogenics. And that sort of set me on the course of solving climate change. Are there any reasons that make it especially personal for you? I've always been a big fan of nature. I found myself very much, I would say, at peace when I'm in the wilderness. I'm, I used to be a bit of a hiker. I used to be a big time nature photographer. So appreciating and understanding the world has always been something I, I really much enjoy, enjoy doing. Uh, however, for me, the challenge is how can I connect what I love, which is the world and nature and climate to my skill sets, which is engineering at that time. And I realized that given clean technologies, given electrification, given the rise of solar and wind and, and later on the storage and electric vehicles, that there's actually a good match. So I basically combine what I do best with what I love most. When you meet people that don't understand why it's so important to mitigate climate change, how do you talk to them so that they understand the urgency? Yeah, in terms of the urgency, I think it's, it's very similar to the previous question. I think we talked about how I got into climate change, but now let's talk about why it means the most to me now and what it means to others who may not understand climate change. I have two kids. I have two boys, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And in about a month and a half, I will have my third boy, so zero, two, and four. And I look See, around... See, to me, this sounds like an answer to the personal question. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it was personal to me when, of how I got into the business, and now is how it is personal to me now. How it's personal to me now is really because it's within our lifetime and within our kids' lifetime. If I look at everything I see on the news today, whether it's like hurricanes or floods or forest fires, when I see all the cities and states and countries stepping up for, let's say, 50% clean energy goals by 2030, or 100% clean energy or renewables by 2045 or 2050. This is not only within our lifetime, this is probably still within my career time frame. And this is absolutely within my boys' time frames. So for me, it's number one is I need to solve and use all that I can in the time that I have been given. And number two is how can I not lead it to their lifetime and until they're grown up? we talk about 2030 goals, they will still be in primary school at that time. So I really take this upon myself, and it's my responsibility to pave the path for them. Can you talk about how you explain climate change to them and to others? In terms of how I would explain climate change to people and to my kids, I really want to use the term survival. We have to understand the environment and the context that we live in, and we have to respect the environment and the land that we live in. 
I think very commonly in society, we talk about the, the legal system, the political system, the financial system, and of course, now the social media system. All these are contexts and environments which we live in. But most fundamentally right now, the, the, our mere existence is being challenged, which has far-fetched consequences in the other contexts that we talk about as well. And how do we maintain the survivability of our current and future generations? But I would say climate to me is context and respecting what's around us. Can you talk about what you do at Opus One and a little bit about Opus One? Opus One is a software engineering company, and uh, we focus our software on digitalizing the electric power system and most specifically the distribution grid. Why the grid, right? So when people think climate change, they think a lot about solar and wind and electric vehicles, uh, smart thermostats, et cetera, et cetera. But the grid connects it all. And while we can focus on the end solutions, and the end solutions, thanks to the past 10, 20, 30 years of technology innovation, it's all becoming more of a norm and price points are going down and technologies are, are fairly mature. Of course, there are innovations every single day on things such as battery technologies or electric vehicles. However, if we talk about us as a system, it's the network that really matters. And the grid is like a platform revolution for clean energy. It can become a major constraint or barrier to clean energy adoption. And we can, of course, in that case, continue to upgrade the grid the good old ways or keep forcing or pushing distributed technologies onto the grid. But at the same time, we can open it up as, a, as an intelligent platform to also pull and enable and empower clean technologies to connect. And subsequently, we use the word transact on the grid. To us, the key to solving climate change and how we play in that big, big system is that we enable electrification. That's a common way of addressing climate change, electrification, but also enabling electrification by strengthening and modernizing the grid, which is the network or the platform that connects them all. And we do so with software by number one, creating a digital twin of the grid that includes the physics of the grid. And then we run subsequently advanced data analytics on that digital twin. So maybe I can talk for a few seconds on what is a digital twin and why do we need it? I'm interested in how you're going to make that understandable for everybody. Yeah, no problem. Let's dive a bit deeper into that whole buzzword called the digitalization or that digital twin. I'm sure you work out and I work out and, and I think we, we have a lot of wearables on our bodies these days, like our, our smart watches and wristbands and et cetera. And these are devices we strap on our bodies and we can, I guess, run data analytics or AI on top of it, but nothing that tells more about the human body more than a single strand of DNA. Our DNA contains the most information about our human body and our composition. So to me, a digital twin is basically mapping out the DNA of the grid. We understand fully mathematically and physics-wise 
how the grid is designed, what it's composed of, and how it operates. That's basically it's a, a mathematical formulation of a, a grid's equivalence. So that is the digital twin. So given that call it the DNA of the grid, what can we do about it? Well, in terms of the human body, we run diagnostics, we run predictive analysis so that we can be healthier. For us, we apply the DNA in, I would say, three key ways. Number one is how we plan for the grid. What planning means is basically how we connect uh, distributed resources or how we basically invest in the grid itself. Invest in poles and wires and cables and transformers, or do we invest in solar and storage and electric vehicle charging, etc.? That's the planning side, and it's very strategic these days because a lot of today's problems are actually strategic problems that can be solved by better planning. Second is after you plan, then we use that model or that DNA to operate the grid. So what operations means is to control and manage the grid in real time, i.e. the utility control room or in some system automation, which controls the grid in real time. And last but not least, it's actually not about technical opportunities or constraints itself. It's the economic side. So when we see what is the biggest challenge that the grid goes through right now, of course, solar might create constraints or electric vehicles might create constraints. But fundamentally, we need to create a system that is not just environmentally sustainable and not just technically sustainable, but also economically sustainable. And what that means is how can we create better economic systems, i.e., programs, procurements, markets that can really understand and create sustainable incentives for clean energy so that we're not paying it purely based on subsidies and programs, but a true, I would say, value-driven market for clean energy. So the last application of that DNA is to use data analytics on the grid to inform what new business models or market designs should happen on the electricity network. As an analogy to Digital Twin, you use DNA. Now, DNA, there's the debate between nature and nurture. Is there an analogy with a digital twin of the grid, the nurture part? <laughs> I love it. This is the first time someone has stuck a lot deeper into the DNA analogy. I love it. <laughs> the digital twin first looks at nature because it looks at what is status quo, what exists today. We are not creating greenfield, or most of the time we're not creating greenfield electrical systems. Most of the modern world that we're looking at has a grid that is maybe anywhere from, from 20 to, to 100 years old. So the nature part is absolutely critical and call it legacy or baggage or basically assets that we have to respect. The nurture part is what gets interesting. We can't always change nature, but we can always nurture. And for us, the nurture part is what we do now, which is around advanced controls, optimization, situational awareness, and applying strategic objectives such as decarbonization and decentralization to better the performance of the grid. 
you left a gap for us. What happened before Opus One? How did you get to where you are? After my、uh, university education, actually, I joined a utility. Why I joined a utility is really back to I would say very similar roots of why Opus One addresses the utility grid in the first place. After dealing a few years with solar and also fuel cell technology, I really feel like the network is the key to manage clean energy. So I joined a utility in the city of Toronto.、Uh, that's the、uh, Toronto Hydro, and I was actually the first new engineer they hired for about 13 years. So I actually broke a 13-year hiring freeze, and I was very fortunate to be given a lot of chances to participate on on really leading-edge stuff at the utility. So I spent a bit of time, the first two three years or so, working on federal and subsequently、uh, provincial policymaking. Which ultimately led to the first、uh, legislation for clean energy in the province of Ontario, and afterwards, I actually developed a 25-year roadmap for smart grid infrastructure. So it's long-term understanding we're dealing with infrastructure here. Then I was、uh, fortunate enough to run a portfolio of R&D and D activities, which includes things like、uh, spot metering, battery technologies, microgrid design. Uh, the first electric vehicle projects, sensors, data analytics, etc., and that really formed the foundation of Opus One's vision. That's very exciting. How did you make the jump from utility to entrepreneur? I think、um, my my pivotal moment was leaving behind number one a very solid roadmap for smart grid infrastructure, and second is really qualifying a portfolio of technologies. That can carry the utility from pilot mode, which is very common, into actually scaled rollouts. My realization afterwards was I can actually continue to add a lot of value to utilities globally if we actually create a new solution. And I also saw a gap in existing solutions at that time as well. So that prompted me like a mix of. There's a gap in technology and solutions, and the ability to address. Many many utilities in many jurisdictions.、Uh, that's what prompted me to come out. It seems to me there would be a bit of a culture shock moving from utility, guaranteed paycheck, and so on, into the world of being a founder and a CEO of a company. So you must have had some setbacks along the way. Can you discuss that? Yeah, the initial startup game, as some may call it, it's never easy, and and I've actually never imagined myself to become an entrepreneur. I just want to solve a good problem, which is actually one of the best motivators of starting a business. Finding great problems that's worth solving. I didn't jump into it as quickly as I hoped, though. There was a bit of a transition plan, which includes me helping our friends' companies start of a battery storage business. So I ran that for about a year and a half, and I also worked with another friend, which was working on three parallel startups, which was fun. So he was doing three parallel startups, including、uh, clean energy, healthcare, as well as social media. So that was aggressive, and I learned a lot from that experience as I started Opus One. And but still, I think uh, uh, the transition to Opus One by myself as a founder of the company really has its ups and downs. I think financially, of course, has been very challenging. I actually mortgaged my parents' home. To start Opus One, which was our bootstrapping mode, 
And the other thing is without the full power and resources of a utility, it's that much harder to ramp up your, let's just say your partner ecosystem and hiring for resources, et cetera. So these are some of the setbacks. I would say financially is one key thing. Resources that you can deploy is another big thing. And I would say in our particular industry, timing is the most important parameter because this industry is shifting, is evolving very quickly, but it is still infrastructure and it is still regulated. And so understanding the time that's required to go from research to development to demonstration and commercialization and match that with market needs and market readiness that will also differ by utility and jurisdiction and that requires quite some strategy to navigate all those complexities. Very much so. Can you talk about a success or successes that you're most proud of? A few successes that really, really comes to mind. Number one is, is perhaps what I would like to call our moonshot. So based on our DNA or the model of the grid and the optimization, we actually have the capability to, I would say, theoretically calculate the locational and temporal value of electricity or something called distribution LMPs or LMP plus D. When New York reforming the energy vision, so New York Rev came to being, we were fortunate enough to work with National Grid on using the local value of energy to animate what is called a transactive energy market. So that goes to what's the whole business model application. That success was really us using the model DNA of the grid to animate new business models where we can create a win-win situation between the utility as well as distributed energy resources and align them both technically, economically. So that was phenomenal and that, that's a major highlight. The other, I would say, with Hawaiian Electric with HECO, we were very fortunate to work with them in the island of Oahu, where there's about 300% penetration of solar compared to load. And we are able to calculate for them on a very granular level, basically almost like house by house or street by street level, the dynamic hosting capacity across the grid. So what dynamic hosting capacity means is at every single point in time and every single location, we can calculate how much the utility and that location can connect things like solar and storage, et cetera. So that has the opportunity to really alleviate any constraints on the grid caused by distributed resources. And I would say help us settle or reduce some of the risks with distributed resource connections. On the operational side, most recently we have commissioned a project with Nova Scotia Power, which is part of Amira. That's a utility in the east side of Canada. And it was a combined microgrid and DER management system. So there is a, about six megs of wind farm at the tail end of a long feeder. There's a large residential community. There's a large chips and mine. And we actually created a nested microgrid, meaning that for the residential community, we have made them into microgrids with batteries. And for the entire feeder, we have also built and installed a big battery at a substation. So the entire feeder can also become some microgrid that is charged or powered by the wind farm. 
during the past winter season, Hurricane Dorian hit uh, Nova Scotia hard, and our microgrid actually helped the residential customers ride through Hurricane Dorian for up to 19 hours. And that was a, a significant success story for the utility and for us as well. Those are all super exciting examples of success. You must be quite proud. Proud of my team, proud of, I think, uh, what we have today. And, and I would say definitely also proud of the utilities because it's not easy for utilities to, to make some of these very progressive moves, but they really see value to the customer and they see how the grid is transforming into a bit of a platform type of business model. Can you talk about the future? Not just the future of Opus One Solutions, but the future of the planet. It is actually our vision statement at Opus One to create a digitalized, decentralized, and decarbonized planet. So full circle back to climate change. In 20, 30 years out, I see, I would say, I think we are mandated with many policies to become 100% powered by clean energy. And I see an entirely renewable community. I see the grid remaining more as a platform than as the only, I guess, channel to, to energy. I see a lot of fuel switching uh, opportunities, which is a perfect balance between various type of energy resources. I see a very diversified portfolio of energy resources. I see people not taking energy for granted anymore. I think that that's one major trend. Looking at my peers, looking at the generations that come after me, we still have a saying, right? We flip the light switch and when the light goes on and the utility's mandate is to keep the lights on when we flip that switch. I think we can't take that for granted anymore. And I see, I would say a new level of awareness or education in which when we flip that switch, we will have an appreciation or understanding of its impact to the environment and how we can contribute towards it and how we might have to respect that given how much we use and what time we use it at and for what type of appliances. That's what I see 20, 30 years out. I really appreciate the vision. The only part of it that I'm not sure I agree with is taking energy for granted And I'm saying that not because it's not the right thing. People should not. But I don't know if people can make that kind of a switch. I think people, even people that say they're environmentalists and focused on conservation, they still use energy whenever they believe they can. I've heard a lot of people say they're going to make it warm in the winter and cool in the summer regardless. To that comment, I call it optimistically skeptical (laughs) myself. Given just where we come from today, at the same time, I see clear signs. For example, amongst my friends, I don't know of a single person who will buy another pure gas vehicle. So I think that on the electric vehicle front, the momentum is is extremely strong and I can see the market tipping definitely in the next 20 to 30 years, if not even earlier as well. And I see my kids even going to junior kindergarten and they talk about sustainability. And even when, let's say, he washes his hands and he keeps the tap on, first thing he says is, Dad, I don't want to take water away from the blue whale. (laughs) This is a very, very, (laughs) I would say, cute analogy, but I think just the awareness (laughs) um, is is there. And and I think with good education, 
I think we can absolutely shift culture. I still think people are going to use energy when they want. I'm agreeing with you, like electric vehicles. I certainly love electric vehicles, and that's all I drive now. Mm -hmm. But I think people are going to buy it when the price point hits, more than because they're motivated by the planet, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly why I think two things must make sense. Number one is technology as a standard. So, for example, you can't really buy another non-electric vehicle or or range yes. and a plug-in hybrid. Uh, same as you can't really buy another incandescent light bulb. Uh, that that technology standardization is key. In my house, we only have electric fireplaces. We don't have gas fireplaces anymore. But the other is the economic side. So. If we can truly create an economic system that incents clean energy and I would say understands the true value and complete the value stack, including perhaps a more controversial topic, which is the price of carbon. And I think absolutely we can create the right economic signals in the next, I would even dare say, five to 10 years. The other thing as well is back to software tools. I think we, we talked a bit about, I mentioned about the price of carbon. At Opus One, when we deploy a distributed energy resource management system at, at DERMS for short, we know pretty much exactly where power is generated, consumed, stored, lost, and how it flows on an electrical network. That's part of a DER management system. But why can't we do the same for, let's say, tracing carbon? I think we actually know and have enough data to see where carbon is generated, how it's consumed, would love to store more of it, and perhaps even tying it across multiple industries. So I think given the right data sets and tools, and translating those data into technology standards as well as economic incentives, I think we can get there. Maybe, Maybe I'm optimistic as an entrepreneur, I have to be. But I think it's absolutely a problem that is worth solving and solvable in terms of using technology to shift cultural norms. I think we have to solve it. There's no choice. And I do think we will. I think the way to get people engaged is going to be by making it simple and making it economical versus them truly understanding the urgent situation Mm -hmm. we're facing. Yes, well, that human nature is still human nature. And if I can say that technology makes it even more critical. Absolutely. Yeah, to make it simple, to make it happening in the background. And perhaps all you see is a button or switch still. Just like today, we flip the switch and there are billions of dollars of infrastructure behind that switch to make it happen. And maybe in the future, people create that switch and automatically they trust or take for granted, not that the system exists, but that the system already self-optimizes and is clean and sustainable already. I think that is a great vision to have. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I think that today people view their light switch as turning the light on, and people are still going to want to just turn a switch on. That's just human nature. But knowing that that switch is a clean switch is going to get people excited. We call it triple sustainability, environmentally sustainable, technically sustainable, as well as economically sustainable. Ooh, I like that. I'm going to steal it. (laughs) Do you have any questions for me? I'll throw the same question back at you. 
which is where do you see the vision of the future 20, 30 years out? I'm sure you definitely talked to a lot of great people about climate change. Has that affected your vision and where do you see it now? I am in many ways more pessimistic and in many ways more optimistic since I began this podcast. Mm-hmm. On the pessimistic side, I've learned that climate change is much worse than I thought it was. It's happening faster than we thought. All the scientific research that gets published is very conservative. The things that are more 50-50 don't really get out there because people don't want to be attacked. And half those 50-50s come in, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm very concerned about the urgency with which we need to solve this problem and the lack of response that we're seeing worldwide. On the positive side, I think there's incredible people, there's incredible technology, there's incredible will starting to develop. And so I think as things get worse, that's only going to grow and we're going to beat it back. But I don't think we're going to beat it back without significant pain first. Yeah, yeah. I think in many ways, from a business perspective, I'm optimistic that we can solve the problem. I think if there's any major biggest challenge to business is how aware people are. And as I quoted, it's it's a timing. Will there be enough urgency to act in time? Especially, let's say, when all the trees, are, a lot of the trees are getting burned up and the bees dying. And so I see a lot of concerns as well. And I would say there's a clear call to action here which is, I would say, in the minds of an engineer as well as an entrepreneur, the technology solutions exist. We can solve the problem. We don't want to, oh, there is no need to pick one solution over the other because whether it's carbon capture and storage or clean generation, battery storage, we need it all. And the only way we can save the space is that we have a concerted, urgent effort to point all technologies. And I'm thankful that Opus One is a small part of it, addressing the electrical system and continuing the electrification process. But we need everything and we need it now. Me too. But as you talked, I came up with, I think, a one-sentence answer to your question. And I'll even preface it by repeating what you said. And that is... The technology is basically there, but we're dealing with an extremely urgent problem, but we don't yet see it as an urgent problem, so we don't have the urgent response. If we all agree that the urgency issue is number one, again, me as an engineer, first thing that comes to mind is the utility control room. If a storm hits and and a feeder gets knocked out, first thing you do is raise the alarm. And so visibility and situational awareness is the key. Number one, I thank you, Lee, for raising the awareness and giving more visibility to this critical issue. And two is I continue to look for technical ways to better increase situational awareness of the impacts of carbon and how it's being generated and consumed in the world. I'm wondering if there is a a, a technology idea there. That's a question. Maybe it's for, um, for somebody else to solve, but I would love to see this solved. Yeah, I think Greta is trying to solve it for us. <laughs> Not with technology, but using social media, right? Yeah, yeah, I hope so. All right, hey, I'm going to wrap this up, and I'm going to wrap it up 
with a rap. Awesome. I was hoping for it. Things are dead. So you said no to being a paleontologist instead of music. Try engineering. Your parents did insist. Climate change. You have to cease because being in nature is when you are at peace. You were inspired by solar on trains and highways. Not very trivial. But for Josh, it was life-changing and pivotal. The topic where you felt that you had to begin was the DNA analogy of a digital twin. Motivation for being a climate change hero is for the boys to win four and in a month a kid who'll be zero. For his kids and the love of Earth, Josh will strive. He'll do his best to ensure the planet's survival. In the future, he thinks it will be the norm for the grid to be an energy platform. The focus on the clean energy that you did was to advance the distribution grid. You believe that the network had the ability, so you joined Toronto Hydro, the local utility. Josh's entrepreneurial spirit was evolving. You had to find a great problem that was worth solving. Hey, sorry about the part of the podcast where I ranted, but I just think that people will always take energy for granted. Word. Lee, I was hoping for that. Thank you for blessing me with a rap. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> Josh was thinking about a career in music when his parents pointed out his strengths in math and science. I, for one, am thankful. There are a lot of great musicians, and Josh might have been one of them, but there's only one Opus One Solutions, and it is Mr. Wong's Opus, a great demonstration of the many ways to be innovative and creative. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. And if you're in San Diego and you want to trade your concern about climate change for a few hours of some great laughs, most weekends I'm doing improv comedy at either the Old Town Improv Company or Finest City Improv or both. Contact me to confirm specific show dates. And if you want a release from some of life's stress or to improve your speaking skills, consider taking an improv workshop at an improv club in your town. Josh is a smart grid innovator focused on grid modernization and strategic development. He's a visionary and business model innovator who delivers results and is a firm believer and practitioner of positive sum and win-win solutions. And the biggest win in this case is helping to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.